Trent Radio attended the Arts Vote All Candidates debate on Wednesday, October 9th, 2019 at Showplace Performance Centre. The event focused on federal government policy and its impact on the local arts, culture and heritage scene. The event was hosted by EC3 and supported by a coalition of local arts organizations. The event was over two hours long and live broadcast on Trent Radio 92.7 CFFM in Peterborough, Ontario, Canada. The segment includes introductions from each candidate followed by panel questions and responses. The whole event will also be produced as a podcast for EC3 and distributed through their media channels. Welcome everyone to Arts Vote Canada 2019. My name is Sue Ditta and I'm the Executive Director of the Electric City Culture Council. We are so delighted and fortunate to have worked with a wonderful team of Peterborough to bring this cultural incubator here to you tonight. It's amazing how many hands it takes to make an event like this happen and we're grateful to each and every one of you who helped and thanks to all the candidates for taking time to join us for this very important discussion on arts, culture, and heritage issues. There was a time in this fair land when arts, culture, and heritage issues weren't debated during the federal election or any other election, and we're really proud of the fact that Peterborough is one of the cities that does this for every election. And we have to thank our local candidates for participating. But our first and foremost thanks go, as always, out to the Indigenous people of our region. And I'm going to read our territorial acknowledgements. We want to respectfully acknowledge that Showplace, where we are tonight, is located on the Treaty 20 Mississauga Territory and in the traditional territory of the Mississauga and Chippewa Nations, collectively known as the Williams Treaty First Nations. They include Curve Lake, Hiawatha, Alderville, Scugog Island, Rama, Beausoleil, and, their, and the Georgina First Nations. And we want to thank them for having us here. And we want to say that um, the road to decolonization and reconciliation is a long one. It's an arduous one and one that we have to recommit ourselves to every day. And uh, we're all working towards that goal, and our um, thanks and acknowledgements are sincere and from the heart, but need to be followed up by action. As I know you know, our focus tonight is on federal government policy and its impact on the local arts, culture, and heritage scene. I want to thank all of the candidates for taking our sector seriously. We're hoping to stay focused on arts, culture, and heritage issues. Our moderator tonight is James Cullingham. James is um, a new convert to Peterborough, although he's known it for a while and loved it. He's recently moved here. He's an award-winning documentary filmmaker, a historian, and journalist. He's been an executive producer with CBC Radio, and his work has been published in many major uh, leading magazines and newspapers in Canada. He received his doctorate in Canadian and Latin American history from Toronto's York University in 2014. He was the coordinator of the journalism program and professor of journalism and English in the liberal studies program at Seneca at York from 2002 to 2018. And 
He is currently an instructor at the Chani Wenjek School for Indigenous Studies here in Peterborough. We're honoured to have him moderate the panel tonight. He is the boss. He rules. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome James Cullingham. Hello, Nogajuanang, Peterborough. Uh, I'm thrilled to be here and honoured to have been asked to do this. I'm sure you join me in admiration and respect for all these candidates who work so hard. And I've had the pleasure of uh, seeing them visit and uh, dialogue with students at, uh, in, in Indigenous Studies at Trent. And uh, thank you so much for being here tonight. I'm going to introduce each of the candidates and then we'll begin with the five-minute statements. Um, I do have timing devices um, we will be clocking you, and uh, we will impose the uh, time limits. So to begin with, uh, alphabetically, Andrew McGregor from the Green Party. Andrew works as a financial advisor in Peterborough, where he lives with his wife and three kids. Andrew finds his call to action in the Green Party of Canada's environmental platform, believing wholeheartedly in immediate, bold, and comprehensive climate change policy, to secure a healthy environment for future generations. To my right is Mariam Monsef of the Liberal Party. Mariam Monsef has been the Member of Parliament for Peterborough Court since 2015. She's also held a number of ministerial roles and is currently the Minister for Women and Gender Equality and the Minister for International Development. Mariam and her family have been residents of Peterborough for over 20 years and she is a dedicated community organizer and passionate volunteer. To my left, Candace Shaw with the New Democratic Party. For more than 25 years, Candace has been a strong advocate for arts and culture workers and organizations. She's fought both locally and nationally to raise wages for arts workers, to ensure that they are respected and treated fairly, and for equity for women in the arts and culture industries. Michael Skinner. Michael is a leader, visionary, highly respected entrepreneur and author. Michael is currently on leave as the president and CEO of the Innovation Cluster, which supports innovative entrepreneurs in the formation and growth of technology-driven companies. The cluster focuses on four key sectors, clean tech, agricultural tech, healthcare, and digital technology. Um, We did our card trick uh, just as we were sitting down, and uh, Ms. Monsef has five minutes of the people's airtime. When he said devices, he wasn't kidding. He has like six up here, and I'm going to add one to it. Um, hello, everybody. Bonjour. Anin. Salam alaikum. Um, how wonderful it is to be back here at the Nexacom Lounge on this Treaty 20 territory, um, to be surrounded by so many talented and hardworking advocates in our community. Many thanks to you for agreeing to facilitate this conversation, to my fellow candidates, to the expert panel, and to you, Sudita, for being, in many ways, one of the strongest champions for Canadian arts, culture, and heritage. Uh, We are grateful to have you, and to the volunteers at Showplace, who are making sure that we are well taken care of, and of course to all of you. This is an important conversation, and you know, the link between arts, culture, and heritage, and politics may at first be difficult to make, but 
For me, instinctively, I have always understood it. Not just because arts and culture and heritage are vital to our economy, to our identity, to the way that we will be remembered, but also because it's an important part of our healing. Sue spoke about uh, the nation-to-nation healing and relationship building that needs to happen between the diversity of cultures that exist in this great country. As strong as we are, there's still more work to be done to build bridges. Uh, And I learned um, about who I am and who my people are through my grandfather's stories. And when the Taliban came into power in the 1990s, they muted culture. They banned TV, video, cinema, and music. And in the process, not only did they harm an entire nation, but they broke our people's spirit. That is the value of arts, culture, and heritage. And it was at PCVS that I was able to better appreciate the importance of Canadian heritage, Canadian culture, and Canadian artists. It's where I found my healing. It's where I gained a sense of confidence that I could get up in front of a big audience. And, you know, even if my fly was undone in that first audition in grade nine for Cabaret, the show would go on and I would get over it. And of course, it was the closure of our beloved arts program at PCBS that was one of the key politicizing moments in my life. And seeing how much this community cared, well, that hasn't changed much, has it? It's been thanks to advocates in this community that we have been able to protect and ensure investments in our beloved CBC and Radio Canada. It's because of the advocacy of people in this room that we have seen historic investments in the last four years. The biggest reinvestments in cultural creative studies in Canada's history have happened over the past four years under our government. Investments that have helped stabilize the CBC, given more direct support to artists, and created more good jobs for the talented people who tell and shape our stories. We've invested nearly $2 billion in cultural infrastructure, and we also protected fiercely, fought tooth and nail in the NAFTA negotiations with our American and Mexican counterparts to ensure that we protect for Canadian culture because it is always worth standing up for. Locally, supporting projects like Arts Week, the Peterborough Museum and Archives, the Art Gallery of Peterborough, Music Fest, the Canadian Canoe Museum, which received the second largest federal cultural infrastructure investment in the province, worth $11 million, have been really key to our community. We've dedicated a million dollars to make sure that we build in Peterborough County an agricultural heritage museum to protect our rural identity and to celebrate it. We've supported our writers, our producers, our directors and actors and crews with an additional investment of $172 million in the Canada Media Fund and a historic $595 million fund to support the Canada Media Fund. This is to ensure independent journalism is strengthened and this is a program that our conservative colleagues have promised to cut. As Minister for Women, I am incredibly proud of the fact that we now apply an intersectional gendered lens to the programs and the grants and the decision-making processes and the awareness-raising aspect of these programs. We've come a long way and we have a longer way to go. 
We've appointed women for the first time to key roles, such as the head of CBC, the head of Telefilm, the head of our National Gallery of Canada. I need your vote this election, and I look forward to making the case for why, when you step into that booth on October 21st, or this weekend, that you put an X next to my name. Thank you. Now we'll hear from uh, Andrew McGregor. Thank you, James. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Andrew McGregor, and uh, for many of you, this may be the first time that you see my face or hear my voice, so I'd like to take some time to introduce myself personally. Um, very, until very recently, um, my, I was a full-time dad. My kids have recently started junior kindergarten. Um, they are five and four and four. Um, so you can imagine, over the last few years, I have been very busy. Um, I don't get out very much. I don't, I don't have the opportunity to uh, grab a pint and watch a show. I don't have the opportunity to um, do an art crawl like I did have very recently. Um, we had our first Friday art crawl a couple of weeks ago, and I wandered my way up into the, stone, the old stonemason temple, and I met with Joe there. And um, what an experience. That's something that I haven't been able to do for you know, five years plus. Um, I am right now a financial advisor and I work with my clients in retirement planning and estate planning and I discovered very recently that I was having trouble um, discussing with my clients uh, their maturing portfolios in 30 years. And we talk about 2050 a lot. Um, these are, this is a common year for our climate target, greenhouse gas reduction targets. And I was, I was saying to my clients, you know, if you want to retire in 30 years, I'll be 64 and it would be nice. Um, then your aggressive portfolio should perform in such a way. And it was start, I was starting to feel like it was a promise that I was making that I wasn't sure our country could keep. When I received the call from my friend, Andrew, the Green Party needs a candidate, will you do something? Um, I had to take a look at my kids and remember the promise that I had made to them. I will do everything for my kids to make sure that they have a bright and prosperous future. So, Andrew, will you do something? Yeah, I guess I will. I, I will run, and I will commit my time and my efforts. I want to be able to say to my clients and, and to my kids that the future that we'd like to plan for ourselves can be carried out. And, of course, this means that we have to take bold action in our climate uh, policies. But, of course, we're here to talk specifically about the arts. Um, and what needs to be said with regards to um, how we proceed over the next 10 years to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, um, over the next 30 years to get to a carbon-neutral place, is that we have to do it in such a way that no one is left behind. How we act in a crisis, and I'm going to quote Ms. Shaw here. She said this to me earlier. How we act in a crisis um, says a lot about who we are. And if we are going to act in, a, in, in this climate crisis um, and bring everyone along, we don't lose our Canadian identity, we don't have to sacrifice our humanity, we have to ask that big question down the road, if we can't solve this, are we sharers or are we hoarders? This is who we are as people, as Canadians, and how we act in this crisis is going to define us. So... Um, when we talk about um, the arts, the culture, our heritage, where we've come from, where we need to go, and how we identify ourselves, how we express ourselves uh, with, the, with the arts, um, how, my, how my wife has dragged me out to her productions in St. James Players, you know, these, these are our voice to the world as, as who we are. Um, and, 
everything that we do going forward has to flow through that lens of it's crisis time. How do we do well? How do we bring along our Canadian identity? Um, and that's what we're hoping to flesh out tonight in great detail. Um, how much time do I have there? 90 seconds. 90 seconds. Um, before I was a financial advisor, I worked as a conductor for CN Rail. Um, before uh, CN Rail, out of Sioux Lookout, uh, I worked as a, an, IT techni- or an, an IT consultant. I've been a self-employed uh, small business owner most of my adult life. I know what it's like to take a risk to develop something from scratch, um, to know that maybe there's no income, but maybe there is an income. I know what that risk feels like. Um, and before then, I, I worked uh, at a church here in town. Um, my, I bring a varied background of, of work. I've taken part-time jobs to support the business. And I know that for a lot of arts producers that that's a reality that we face is that we have to compromise our intentions, our time. We have to um, balance the need to pay, pay our bills and, and often at a compromise for, for, for how we would like to spend our time. So uh, in conclusion... Uh, Thank you all for coming here tonight, and um, I hope that over the course of the night you will agree with me that uh, the best movement forward for Canada and for um, our artists is to vote boldly for uh, strong climate action on October 21st. Thank you. I believe Michael has a um, microphone. I do. Mike Skinner over here. Mike's going to mic. That's loud. So first of all, I'd like to thank all of you for coming tonight. You know, as was mentioned, I mean, art uh, didn't obviously make it into the national debate. It's something that, uh, quite frankly, it doesn't uh, come up at the door very often when I'm knocking on doors. But it's something that obviously each of you are very, very passionate about, which is why you're here. So I'd just like to thank you for being here. And really much thank the organizers for making this happen. Again, this isn't something that happens, I think, across the country. When I talk to my other colleagues, I think I'm one of the only ones that are actually having a discussion about art. And so, you know, it is very important to this community because it makes up the fabric or what this community, you know, when you look at the economic development that happens inside this community, a lot of it gravitates around art. You know, we have the music festival, of course, that, that happens. It's one of the only music festivals like it in the, you know, in the entire country, and it's something that's very sacred, and I think it's 25 years or so. Um, we've got Reframe which is something that uh, has been around for quite some time and is continuing to build. You know, I know when I was originally building the venue, it was one of the first groups that, that reached out to me to say, hey, we need to expand Reframe, and how can we, uh, can we put this inside your facility? And so I think, first of all, art is very, very important. For me personally, you know, I was born in this riding. I was born here. I went to school here. You know, I work here today. And so for me, my life is all about this community. And so I said earlier, I don't hear about art necessarily at the door. And what I do hear about is, you know, affordability. You know, the number one thing that people talk to me about is affordability. You know, we've knocked on over 40,000 doors now. So I hear it a lot. The second thing I hear, which I didn't hear in the last election, and I'm very happy to hear at the door, is the environment. You know, the environment is crucial to everyone. We're finally hearing it being brought up again. It's brought up at almost every door. You know, our conservative plan for the environment mixes taking innovation, which is how we're going to find solutions, and puts it together and works with corporations. It's not a carbon tax that's going to basically tax the you know, average person or tax small business. It's something that's going to go after the major polluters and bring that money down. I think that's key. The other thing I hear at the door is, is just the overall reputation of Canada. And we want to make sure that we have a solid reputation for Canada as we go forward. Um, but like all of you, 
you know, we give back to this community. And so for myself, you know, I volunteered for a number of groups that are a bit diverse. Um, for me, I volunteered for the Peterborough Ag Society, the Shining Waters Railway Board, uh, Peterborough Economic Development, which of course is a very strong part and understands uh, the art side of our aspect of our, of our community. Trent University Business Council, Fleming College is CAWT, and the PRHC. Personally, um, I've invested in art. You know, I back in 2008, I invested in uh, the Red Dog, was a establishment which well known for live music, and restored it back to um, what it was, which was a live music venue that allowed artists to play every single day. It's something that I thought was lacking, and I was able to do that because I came from a strong business, and my business is doing well. And so for me. Government has to make sure that it's supporting business and it's making sure the businesses are continuing to do very well. If it's not supporting your businesses, then entrepreneurs like myself, you know, every time you see a festival that has a sponsor's name on it, you know, those businesses are able to give back to the community because we've got a government that understands and respects them and understands how to make sure that they continue doing well. And so I think that's crucial. Um, from a conservative point of view, we just made an announcement yesterday, and so we believe that, uh, that obviously our history needs to be more accessible, and so we're going to make access to the Canadian War Museum, Human Rights, Immigration, and the National Gallery of Canada free. And so we believe that by basically giving $20 million back or not taking it at the door is that we're going to make these museums important because they are national museums and they drive the heritage of our, of our country. We also think that kids really need to understand, of all levels, art. And so um, every child will be eligible for a $500 uh, tax credit for, to the parents that are enrolled in art or education courses, and that doubles to $1,000 when it comes to a child that's disabled. And so again, we understand that how important it is for art. But the one thing I want to point out, and I'm sure this is going to come up here tonight because it's come up in other debates, is we have to make sure that we're living within our means. We have to make sure that we have a government that's not putting huge debt and burden on top of our children and the next generation. Today at the provincial level, you know, the third largest expense is interest. We want to make sure that doesn't happen at the federal level because what happens is the first thing that gets cut when the government can't afford to, to cover itself a lot of times is art programs. And so we want to make sure that we are, as a government are making sound decisions and that we're not spending too much money today and we're not borrowing too much, which is why we need to get back to balancing the budget. I know it's going to take us five years and we're not going to do it overnight, but we have to get the, balance, the budget back because those interest payments that we're going to keep making, you know, the $2.2 million per hour that we're making at the federal level, if that keeps growing, that's going to come off of key programs. And you know where the key programs are going to start with? You know, they're not going to start with health, as I would hope. They're not going to necessarily start with education, but they will start with some of the cultural things. And so we have to make sure that doesn't happen. So it's crucial that we make sure we have a government balance the budget. Thank you, Mike. Um, and now, Candace Shaw. Thank you so much. I've spent my life woo, fighting for the rights of arts and culture workers in this community. From my high school years postering for punk rock shows at the Jolly Hangman and acting in the Cavan Blazers at Fourth Line, to booking music at the Montreal House and running the Peterborough Folk Festival and Arts Week Peterborough, the arts have been my career and my life for more than 25 years. So I know how rough it is to carve a living in a country that chronically underfunds and under-resources the arts in small cities and towns. I know what it's like to go from gig to gig, precariously employed when you're employed at all, to worry about making rent and to not make rent. 
Uh, I know what it's like to go off your antidepressants because you can't afford the $70 a month uh, prescription and to go a decade without visiting a dentist because you can't scrape together the $300. I've always looked around this community and seen the city's best and brightest minds weighed down by the stresses of precarious employment, multiple part-time jobs, rising rents, declining incomes, unaffordable health care and mental health treatment, addictions and trauma. And I've seen how these systemic problems have left the door open for abuse, for abusers, and left people in this community without the support, resources, or time to break free. When I moved to Toronto, I found I had the safety to be more outspoken about what I'd witnessed and experienced in this community. And when I spoke up, people got in touch with me to share their stories from this community. I've done my best to raise my voice on your behalf when I could. And I know some see this as a disloyal, disloyal to the community, but only abusers win when we're silent. Thank you. For years, I've heard it repeated time and time again, and I'll take Sue's line, that the Peterborough art scene is punching above their weight, and you are. I have such pride in coming from a community with such fertile minds and hard workers, and I've done my best throughout my career to promote you, support you, pay you, uh, host your websites, some of you, and ensure you're treated with professionalism when you show up for a gig. But I know the cost of continuing to punch above your weight, and I know that it's unsustainable. What we need are more supports for people working in arts and culture in this community. In Ontario, the arts and culture industry represents 3.5 of the province's GDP, larger than the mining, quarrying, and oil and gas extraction industries combined. Yet the work is not respected or supported in the same way that those industries are, and arts and culture workers have few protections and often live in poverty. You deserve more. You deserve better. Your, your worth is inestimable to this community and this country. You deserve affordable housing and childcare, supported cultural spaces, well-maintained built heritage, increased and more accessible arts funding, and affordable healthcare. As your MP, I'll demand those things for you because I know from experience how much you have achieved without them, and I honestly could not be more excited to see how much this community will blossom if those supports are in place. You and I know that art does not require suffering, that starving artists aren't at their best, and that mental health and addictions issues, which are glamorized by our culture, are more likely to kill good artists than make good art. On October 21st, please vote for someone who isn't afraid to raise her voice and fight like hell for you. Please vote Candace Shaw. I'd like to uh, introduce the panelists now, once again, alphabetically. And uh, maybe for those who can see you, you can raise your hand or wave or whatever you'd like to do. Uh, Joanne Argue. Joanne Argue is a Cree Scottish musician, artist, mom, dog rescuer, and professor in Indigenous performance at Trent University. She teaches Indigenous orality, storytelling performance, and contemporary Indigenous music. Joanne is the maker of traditional instruments, a bead worker, and a stone sculptor. She's a founding member of Unity, the four women indigenous vocal ensemble that has been bringing traditional and contemporary indigenous music to a variety of venues since 2004. Catherine Carlton is, has been executive director of Orchestras Canada, Orchestre Canada, the National Association for Canadian Orchestras since 2005. Noted as an arts advocate and a leader in collaborative initiatives among arts service organizations, 
She was appointed as a member of the Order of Canada in December 2016, quote, for her efforts to promote a thriving arts and culture sector in Canada as an advocate and voice for Canadian orchestras, end quote. During her 35-year career in the not-for-profit performing arts, Catherine has performed, has worked as a clarinetist, teacher, program manager, granting officer, and orchestra, orchestra manager. Emily Martin. Hello, Emily. Emily is the general manager of Showplace Performance Center, right here, where she loves having the opportunity to work with artists from, quote, down the street and around the world, end quote. Prior to joining the Showplace team, M was the general manager of Peterborough Music Fest. With a passion for arts administration, as well as the importance of what the arts can bring to a community, M has also worked for the Georgian Theatre Festival and Sudbury Theatre Centre. Catherine Matheson. Catherine Matheson is a graduate of the Frost Centre for Canadian Studies and Indigenous Studies at Trent University. She served in the field of heritage preservation in various volunteer and professional capacities for more than a decade and worked as Professor Tom Simons' researcher and administrative coordinator for the past 16 years. She's passionate about Peterborough and about the multifaceted role of heritage in the continued growth and evolution of this community. Alicia Rubishaw. Uh, Alicia May Rubishaw lives and writes in Peterborough, Ontario. She was a finalist for Peterborough's Outstanding Emerging Artist Award 2018 and shortlisted for the PRISM International Creative Nonfiction Contest in 2016. Her work has been published by Apartment 9 Press, Puddles of Sky Press, and Bywords, among others, with a publication from Exile forthcoming. She's the editor and designer of Bird Buried Press, a board member of the Electric City Culture Council, and the Knowledge Transfer Specialist at Nourish, a community, a local community food initiative. I believe the panelists um, have decided how the, who's going to ask the first question, and my understanding is that each of the candidates has 90 seconds to respond to those questions. Thank you so much, and thank you to all the candidates for coming tonight. This is a really important discussion. We appreciate you coming and taking the time. Uh, the arts are vital in any community to create an identity, a sense of belonging, and a high level of social engagement. Another important aspect of a thriving arts scene is the economic impact. Showplace alone has an, an impact of approximately $4 million a year locally. As a presenter of arts and artists, it's incredibly important to have a physical building that is safe and accessible to all patrons. One of the ways that presenters such as Showplace have been able to ensure this over the past two years is through a federal funding program called Canada Cultural Spaces, an infrastructure grant that helps offset some of the costs of renovating spaces to keep up with current codes and requirements. This is a funding program that Showplace has been fortunate to receive in the past. We've heard recently from Canadian Heritage that this capital funding program will close at the end of 2019. My question is, what are your party's plans to ensure that performing arts spaces continue to be safe and welcoming places so that presenters can continue to provide spaces for arts and cultural activities to thrive? And will you provide capital funding to support the development of cultural infrastructure? Who would you like to have answer the question first? Um, let's start with Mike. Go down the, the line, I guess. Yeah. Sure. So thank you very much for your question. And obviously... Uh, 
you know, infrastructure is very important. You know, the previous conservative government was the one that built Market Hall. And so I think uh, we've, you know, both governments back and forth have, have invested in infrastructure. You know, for me, we, the only way we're going to inf- invest in infrastructure if we're able to make sure that our economy is strong and we actually have that extra money to give back into infrastructure. And so for us, it's very much about making sure that we're not spending more that we're making, making sure that our government is living within its means, which allows us to have that surplus in order for us to invest in infrastructure programs. And so I can tell you as your member of Parliament, you know, I, I'm very proud of the investments that we've done when it comes to the infrastructure. You know, I personally made some infrastructure investments next to as well, um, but I would have much rather had a grant from the government for sure. But personally, I'd like to continue going that. As your member of Parliament, I would continue to fight for you to make sure that happens, continue to take your voice forward, and make sure they understand the value of each of the programs locally so that I can explain them up to the national level and so that I can make sure that those individuals that we're talking to and the ministers involved understand how important this city is here as well. Thank you, Emily. Um, First of all, we have to take care of existing infrastructure and moving forward, uh, if Canadians give us another mandate, we are committed to introduce comprehensive heritage legislation on federally owned heritage places and ensure that there's clear direction on how they should be preserved. I was really happy that our community was able to tap into uh, the, the fund over the past four years and to protect and ensure that we build really critical infrastructure here. I will say this, if that program's running out, that's, that's uh, one piece. What we've put forward for Canadians is $180 billion in infrastructure investments divided into three categories. Social infrastructure, which is what we're talking about, public transportation, and green infrastructure. And so one way or another, we're going to work really hard to make sure that we build new spaces so that they can keep creating jobs, keep telling our story, and keep ensuring that those social cohesive uh, components of arts, culture, and heritage are protected. And I will continue to be a strong advocate for just that if you send me back to Ottawa. So our platform doesn't have a specific commitment to the amounts of money that we would put into uh, supporting arts and culture infrastructure, but I know uh, the importance of, uh, of maintaining a, a facility like this. Um, Peterborough had an 800-seat opera house, which we unfortunately tore down to build uh, Peterborough Square, uh, and if we had just maintained that, we probably would have had a, an acoustically beautiful space um, and wouldn't have to, had to do all the community fundraising to build Showplace in the first place. Um, I was around for a lot of that fundraising and involved in some of it. Um, And, you know, I think we're all very proud of this theater. Uh, But we have to take a lesson from the past and say, when we build something like this, we need to make sure that there's funding in, in, the, in the kitty to support the maintenance of it, to support keeping the lights on, the non-sexy things like staffing it and buying janitorial supplies. As you know, managing an arts facility means a full range of things that nobody wants to have their name on as donor. And nobody wants to put their name on the memorial janitorial closet. But we need to make sure that the funding is there and in place. Uh, having once in my life uh, managed a heritage theater for a very short period of time, uh, I can say things like brick pointing and other unsexy projects and roofs that need to be repaired and heating and cooling systems. These things all need the support of the federal, provincial, and municipal governments. And I would fight hard to make sure that you had that support. Uh, 
I, uh, I'd like to echo my, the sentiments of Candice here. Um, our platform also doesn't explicitly lay out a, a dollar figure, um, but I, um, I would like to read the portion that I think applies here. Um, this is I had to do a bit of digging, right? Um, so the Greens would like to implement a federal income tax credit for restoration expenditures to encourage private involvement in persevering, uh, preserving Canada's built heritage. So um, where it comes to uh, making funding available for projects like this, uh, what we'd like to see is a tax credit that is available to private investors, uh, which would mean that someone can, um, because they can generate a tax revenue, um, we can offer a tax break for, for the work that they do to, to offer this, or, or to, sorry, to work on these kinds of places. Um, I, I agree. Uh, you, you have such passion, Candace, and it's and it's infectious. I can see how how much people love to hear it. So, um, yes, absolutely. In our in our Green Party ethos, the uh, the core value of inclusion and making sure that um, that we are supporting people, putting people first, doing the right things for the sake of people, um, and and that uh, is how we would like to also make sure that places like this stay properly funded. So, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so I have a question about Indigenous arts. Um, in, arts funding plays a very important role for Indigenous artists in this area. Um, in the last two years, local artists, uh, Indigenous artists alone, have gotten over $180,000 from Canada Council grants to do work here. And that doesn't even include the um, organizations such as Public Energy and Artspace who support Indigenous artists as well. And um, as Mike mentioned, the arts funding is always an easy target. And as everyone knows, Doug Ford's conservatives cut $7 million from the Ontario Arts Council. Shame, shame, shame. And $2.25 million of that was for the Indigenous Culture Fund. <laughs> and that fund was established in response to the TRC's um, 94 calls to action. So my question to you is, how do each of your parties plan to protect funding for contemporary Indigenous artists, cultural practice, and heritage conservation? And what steps will you take to grow that funding? We'll start with Andrew at the end. <laughs> Move the other way. Um, so how, how are we going to protect uh, funding for Indigenous arts? Um, I'd like to offer, first of all, that um, the Green Party platform has structured itself putting um, re- reconciliation as its first chapter. You know, uh, we've seen hundreds of years of, of consecutive failures by colonial governments to properly recognize the treaties that are in place. Um, and so we, we go to great lengths to establish the tone for the rest of our platform by stating right up front it's um, absolutely imperative that we reframe the relationship as nation to nation. Um, it is absolutely imperative that we recognize the right to self-governance, um, the right to um, the sovereignty of land, the sovereignty of food, um, to implement every recommendation from the um, murdered, missing Indigenous women and girls uh, committee to implement every recommendation from UN DRIP um, to implement every recommendation from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, and uh, where and when consulted to take a back seat on the discussion on um, a nation wanting to withdraw from the Indian Act. Uh, to where and when consulted, essentially, uh, you know sit down and shut up and um, uh, assist to make it happen, right? Um, When it comes to um, protecting funds for Indigenous arts, um, when it comes... That's it. I'm sorry. I took so long. 
That's a great question. Um, I noticed uh, uh, during the sesquicentennial in, I think, 2015, Canada's 150th, there was a ton of arts funding that went out to cultural organizations across this country. And all of a sudden, music festivals had not one indigenous performer, but three or four different indigenous performers on the bill. And then in 2016... Oh, back to one again. Uh, and I thought that was a real shame because one of the highlights for me of the 2015 festival season uh, from all the festivals that I went to and all the festivals that I looked at for our festival report card was the incredible diversity of indigenous performers in this country and the high skill level that they're performing at. Um, and I'm, I'm speaking specifically to music, theater, and dance, but uh, that's across the board. Um, and so for me... Uh, the NDP are fully committed to implementing all of the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, uh, and that would include arts funding. Um, speaking to the idea of cutting arts funding, it's literally one of the stupidest things you can cut. Uh, arts funding in Ontario has a huge return on investment. If you cut that money, you're taking money out of the bank. Uh, you are taking, in Ontario, we, we generate in the arts industry, arts and cultural industry, almost $27 billion a year. That was in 2017, 3.5% of the province's GDP. Uh, and we employ about 300,000 people. So uh, to cut that cuts employment, it cuts tax revenue, and it cuts tourism and other awesome things. Applying that intersectional gender lens that I told you about means that for all of the federal granting and programming, there's greater awareness and deliberate effort and keeping of statistics to ensure that we do better and better each year. And so I disagree with the characterization earlier. We saw at Folk Fest this year, for example, the participation of Indigenous artists was higher than before, and it's 2019. Um, We're going to continuously work to fund and indigenous peoples working to reclaim, revitalize, and strengthen and maintain their languages. There is $116 million uh, at 2023 to 2024 and beyond specifically for that purpose. We've tabled the first ever Indigenous Languages Act, which was co-developed with Métis, Inuit, and Indigenous uh, and First Nation people in Canada to make sure that we are protecting the way people speak and tell their stories and their identity making sure that we have funding set aside so that everybody has greater conversations and awareness about truth and reconciliation. There is a National Day of Truth and Reconciliation Day and National Indigenous Peoples Day, and it's got $10 million in funding. And we've also reinstated the Court Challenges Program, which provides financial supports for Canadians who are uh, in courts advancing equality and language rights. Um, this is not just part of a program. Right. This is a cross government. First of all, thank you very much for your question. So, first of all, the Conservative Party supports the reconciliation process. But what we understand first, and the very most important thing to start off with, is housing, health services, and quality drinking water. 
know, we need to make sure that we're prioritizing on those pieces. The second piece is it comes to our youth and education. You know, a lot of our indigenous uh, communities are still living in, in basically poverty. You know, and many times when you rate them, they're 48th. If you rate Canada as in number one, they're rated on number 48. And so we've got to make sure we're focusing on the economic possibilities first. Now, the nice thing when it comes to economic possibilities is that does include a lot of dance and a lot of entertainment because there's a lot of aspects that comes to that. So that's key. Now, the other thing for us is... We understand that the way that our First Peoples educate is through dance. And so we have a very strong deliverable to make sure that we are providing uh, education services and that education is a priority for our government. And so we want to make sure that there is funding available so that they can continue using education and using dance in their culture and teaching the way that our First Nations people actually teach, which is through dance and through culture experiences. Before Thank you. We get to the uh, next question, I think we have time for a brief uh, rebuttal uh, on this matter. Uh, just two things, really quickly, Mike. Once again, it's not our Indigenous people or our First Nations. And just in terms of the amount of uh, Indigenous artists uh, in programming, I, I run a, a annual report card that grades festivals on the inclusion of women, and though we don't specifically uh, grade for Indigenous inclusion or racialized, it's something that we are turning our eyes to, and so I have a pretty intimate idea of exactly what's going on at music festivals, at least across Canada, and I will say that the Indigenous representation has been fairly low since 2015, and I would like to see it more of it. Uh, in fairness, does anyone else want to speak briefly to this before we move to the next question from the panelists? Thank you for taking my question this evening. In Peterborough, we enjoy a rich legacy of built and cultural heritage that brings to life the stories of the past and helps us to better understand the evolving identity of our community. Heritage preservation not only helps to protect the legacy, this legacy for future generations, it also has positive environmental impacts that align with strategies for climate change mitigation. A building that is renovated or repurposed rather than replaced produces about half the amount of greenhouse gas emissions during its lifetime than its replacement. Retaining existing buildings diverts waste from landfills, recapitalizes materials and energy already invested, and avoids the environmental impact associated with new development. Historic buildings are therefore a crucial part of Canada's low-carbon future. After all, the greenest building is the one that is already built. My question for you this evening is twofold. How does your party's platform address the role for heritage preservation as a vital mechanism for meeting the climate change emergency? And more specifically, does it make provision for a federal tax credit that encourages the reuse and retrofit of existing older buildings, including heritage buildings? Thank you. And uh, who would you like to kick off? We could start with Candice, please. So I spent the last five years of my career working in the distillery district in Toronto, which is um, one of Canada's uh, uh, sort of largest Victorian collections of, of factory buildings. Uh, so I spent a lot of time there working um, for the developers, the condo developers who own uh, the distillery district. Um, and I became intimately aware of, of the expenses and the concerns there. Um, what they've found and what they invested in when they bought that property was uh, that it added a richness uh, to their development that is not found in other places in downtown Toronto where developers have put things in place. Um, though I can't say that my platform specifically has anything about heritage preservation and, 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 and 
dealing with that in terms of the environmental lens, I know that it makes more sense, and like you said, the environmental footprint is much smaller on a building that's already in existence and that can be repurposed and reused. Uh, and that is something that's very dear to my heart. And in the distillery district, I think it's proven to work really well that there's a, there's a public sorry, a private ownership of those buildings, and they've been well-managed and well-maintained, but kept in check by the regulations that are provided by the provincial and federal levels. So we need to make sure that those regulations are in place and that also that there is funding, and whether that's in the form of tax rebates or actual cash on the table. Um, the Heritage Report that I th- was sent to us as part of this uh, had a lot of great recommendations that I feel like I would stand behind, um, and I, f- I think my party would stand behind them as well. I'd like to quote what you said. The greenest building is one that is already built. Thank you. I, I think that that ca- encapsulates um, the different kind of thinking that we need to keep at the forefront. We don't need to be building uh, big new buildings, but repurposing what we already have. Reduce, reuse, recycle. The first of that is reduce, and then, of course, reuse. So um, I, I certainly appreciate the sentiment. Um, the Greens are committing to uh, financing building retrofits um, and installations of renewable energy technologies like solar, uh, for example, rooftop solar, for example, um, by grants, uh, zero interest loans, um, and um, uh, of course, uh, repayments can be made uh, through such programs by the savings that they have. Um, we don't have a specific policy in uh, towards heritage sites specifically, um, but um, through the, uh, the the tax credit that I mentioned before, a private investor could and then receive that that tax credit. Um, so yeah, we would like to see that those things are afforded by uh, by grants or tax exemption. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, the goal of reaching net zero emissions by 2050 and the goal of preserving Canada's heritage, both are ones we share, and the Liberal Party of Canada certainly does. Uh, it's also important in protecting these heritage spaces to maintain connections between people across generations. Uh, prioritizing and preserving and caring for these important places is critical also to our economy. And when we protected and invested in the lift locks, for example, uh, in 2015-2016, $600 million in the Trent Severn Waterway as a whole, that was one way that we did that. And we're moving forward, as I said earlier, with comprehensive legislation on federally owned heritage places to ensure just that. We are absolutely committed to ensuring that retrofits are available, that renewable sources of energy are providing the energy that those buildings need. And also, we designated Canada's first mixed world heritage site, which was recently inscribed, uh, last year was inscribed into UNESCO. Uh, And what it does uh, is reflect Canada's outstanding natural and cultural heritage, as well as the integral role of Indigenous peoples in caring for our natural spaces. We've also announced $141 million for Parks Canada to continue to make the investments necessary across the country and this is an approach that we will continue to move forward on. So renovating an old building takes a lot. You know, as I said, I renovated the, uh, the, ven- the venue, which was built in 1945, I believe, and the Red Dog, which was 120 years old. And I can tell you the number one challenge at the beginning actually wasn't money. 
It was our building code. The amount of red tape it goes through in order to deal with our provincial building code in order to keep things the way they are and retain them and at the same time trying to make them better. And so one of the things we want to do at the federal level is red tape reductions. We want to reduce the amount of administration that comes at the federal level. And we also want to work with the provinces to eliminate that as well. The second thing we want to do is the government of Canada has a lot of surplus today has a lot of buildings that it actually owns that aren't being used. And so we want to put that surplus onto the market and actually sell that surplus so people can take those existing buildings which aren't being used and actually carry them forward and start using them. And the last thing is that we do have an energy grant and where you can basically um, apply for it and get up to $20,000 off of your taxes as a, as a private individual to either insulate the building, uh, change the windows, or add solar cells to it as well. And so we're hoping that that's going to decrease the footprint because the biggest one of the biggest costs for us, 12% of our greenhouse gases today specifically come from home heating and the amount of heat that actually escapes from the insulation. Thank you. Hi. As an artist whose primary employment is in, food, in a food security organization, I'm all too familiar with the idea of the starving artist. Most people remain unaware that 60% of food insecure households are supported by working people whose jobs just don't provide enough income for people to eat properly. Many artists in Peterborough live at or close to the poverty line, and few can work at their practice full-time. Artists' incomes are precarious at best. There is needless suffering in this community and across the country that could be prevented by a simple policy that has been growing in popularity. This policy is called basic income, and it would provide an income floor below which no one can fall. A basic income based on the poverty line would provide enough money for basic needs to be met, including food and housing, for anyone living with a low income. Artists in particular could benefit from such a policy as we are too often among the ranks of the precariously employed. Where do you and your party stand on basic income programs? And if you support the policy, how would you implement it? And Alicia, who would you like to answer first? I don't know if I'm keen. Um, so first of all, basic income is not part of our policy, and it's not part of our platform. It's not part of the, uh, the conservative plan to implement basic income. I know we've actually met uh, and talked about this a couple times. I mean, from my personal point of view, I think one of the issues is we probably shouldn't be calling it basic income. Um, we should consider calling it a basic grant. And so I think there's some sales that we need to work on is how do we get that implemented across our country from a discussion point of view because it's something that a lot of times if you're giving into it, it actually will return. Um, but what when it comes to the poverty side, which you're discussing, I mean, this is the type of things where carbon taxes, I mean, the carbon tax is directly impacting our lower marginalized people because they're the costs that are going to go up. And second of all, um, pardon me? So, and second of all, is, is we want to take off uh, HSTF home heating as well. Because, again, one of our most expensive things when you come to your personal life is actually heating your home. So between carbon tax and heating your home, that's driven up your cost in the last number of years. And we want to make sure that we reduce that down to at least take those expenses out. Thank you. I'm going to continue to be an advocate for guaranteed income. And the Canada Child Benefit is a form of guaranteed income. It's lifting 300,000 Canadian kids out of poverty, over 18,000 kids in this community, and their parents are better off because of it. In the meantime, uh, what we're introducing, if we're able to have another mandate, is for the first $15,000 that you earn, you pay zero taxes. 
that there is a national housing strategy and $55 billion over 10 years for affordable housing. This community, we can build 2,000 units of affordable housing here. And as of April, a new housing benefit is going to kick in so that no matter where you live, you take that subsidy with you. Ensuring, for example, for elders that we increase supports through GIS and OAS is critical. We have a food policy in Canada now. The National Housing and Housing Strategy and the food policy were co-developed with the people of Peterborough, Kawartha, with a focus on nutritious, healthy, affordable, and accessible food to ensure that kids have the best start in life, but that everyone has healthier outcomes as a whole. We've also lifted 900,000 Canadians out of poverty by investing in them because cuts don't work. Cuts hurt people. And every door I knock on now, people are worried about what conservative cut is going to come next and how they're going to be hurt as a result of it. Candace gracefully uh, let me go before her because uh, I don't think I can keep following her tonight. But <laughs> um, The Green Party has in its platform and as a cornerstone of, of our policy is the guaranteed livable income. Wholeheartedly agree with you. It's a, it's a project that showed success in Lindsay, was cancelled far too early. Um, I have a personal story that came out of it. A friend of mine quit his job, started his own business, hired a third person. That's three jobs that were made available through um, this basic income pilot project. And I believe uh, when you lift people out of systemic poverty, you make intangible savings in other places too. Uh, $7.6 billion of our healthcare costs uh, can be attributed to systemic poverty. So we're talking about making... Thank you. We're talking about making significant savings to our overall uh, system. It should be functioned, it should be um, based on the market basket measure, the real cost of living uh, regionally based, um, and so that's MBM if you want to look it up later. Uh, it needs to be structured like the child income tax benefit, a successful program that is a um, without eligibility transfer payment from the Canadian government right to your checking account. We need to make a, a look along the same lines as that. I have three kids, I've received that payment, and I couldn't stay at home with them and offer childcare a work that I did, uh, I couldn't do that without that kind of transfer payment. So um, I'd like to see that grow into what we can call that guaranteed livable income. Thank you. So 32% of people in this riding live under 20 grand a year. Uh, and the whole time that I lived and worked here from my late teens to my mid-late 30s, uh, I never made more than 20 grand myself, working in the arts continuously through that. Uh, so I'm well aware of, of that particular issue. Um, we do not have a specific commitment to long-term universal basic income, but we do have a commitment to a pilot project. I would like to push to see that extended and made into a go right ahead and do uh, basic income. Uh, I know that there are some hesitancies just wondering how you roll back some of the social services. So that's something that needs to be looked into, but I think that can be overcome without having to run another pilot. We've seen the benefits, as Andrew says, in Lindsay and around the province. Um, we know that it works. Uh, we also commit to universal pharmacare, so you would no longer be paying for your prescriptions at the pharmacy. You would show your health card, uh, which will take a lot of people's monthly expenses down. As well, we've committed to dental care for every Everyone under making less than 70 grand a year, which I think is probably most of the people in this room, including myself. Uh, we are committed to half a million dollars of affordable, sorry, half a million units of affordable housing across the country, including in this community, and to $10 a day universal childcare, which I know will help a lot of people with their day 
day-to-day -day expenses. All of those things go to lowering your daily expenses, but I would push for a, a basic minimum income across the board. Just on the topic of the idea of a carbon tax, uh, pricing pollution works. Economists say it works. Environmentalists say it works. We can't afford for pollution to be free anymore. And 80% of people in this province are receiving more money because we are, uh, we are pricing pollution. Polluters are paying. And we're giving the money back to families. We're giving the money back to businesses. And mischaracterizing that is not helpful. Ninety-two percent of the carbon tax is paid for by yourselves and small businesses. The small businesses don't get the credit back. So only eight percent of the major only taxes collected from the major polluters. The biggest issue I have with the way the carbon tax is structured is that the major polluters are getting off with this model. Our model is take the major polluters to tax them or put a levy on it, and they pay that levy into a green tech fund, and that fund then comes up with the next innovation that actually solves our world problems. On the, I'm sorry, this mic, is this mic on? Okay. Uh, the carbon fee and dividend it has been proven to work in British Columbia. We would have seen a, grow, a growth of greenhouse gas emissions of 17% uh, but over the last 10 years as they've had it in place, but instead have seen a reduction of 1%. So this is a, a major success. Uh, what I would like to see changed about the carbon tax is that oil industry is also required to pay it. Why are we subsidizing the oil industry and why aren't they paying the same carbon tax? Artists and art, arts workers are world citizens. We are aware we're paying attention. Um, and for everyone else in the room, I'll, I'll simply say that I appreciate your broad coverage of the issues and for so generously sharing your per perspectives with us. I'll now focus on a very particular topic. In March 2016, the Government of Canada made a five-year commitment to double the investment in the arts through the Canada Council for the Arts, taking that investment from $181 million to $362 million in installments over five years. It's 2019. We are tantalizingly close to the full delivery on that commitment, and the impact is already being felt here in Peterborough-Kawartha, uh, and looking at the list of funded activities, ranges from micro-grants to individuals to significant core grants to organizations, uh, including grants delivered through the Creating, Knowing, and Sharing program, which the Canada Council set up in response to the recommendations from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. If your party forms the next government... Will you deliver on and sustain that commitment? Will you grow that commitment? Or will you reduce or eliminate that commitment? And I'd like to start with Maria Monsef. Thank you, Catherine. And we were so proud to see you become a companion of the Order of Canada in 2016. You make our community look good. Um, I'll begin with the uh, response to the beginning of your uh, point there. 
what we intend to introduce if we form government again is to introduce a new cultural diplomacy strategy with at least one international mission each year to promote Canadian culture and creators around the world. I hope that sends a really strong message about how much we value artists and creators and how much we intend to do business with the global community using their talents and ensuring that they, you, do well. Um, I'm not the finance minister. Uh, I can't make uh, commitments on behalf of him, her, or the prime minister. Uh, but what I can do is commit to you that Just like the rest of my party, I'm going to continue to value the work that is done in communities like ours. And I'm going to continue to push for those investments to be more sustainable, to be more predictable, to ensure that there is uh, more opportunities for strategic planning for organizations and artists themselves in that predictability. Uh, because the proof is in the pudding. When those investments are put in, they pay off many folds and they make our economy and our community stronger. So I'll be very honest, we don't have it in our platform today. It's not that it's not there, it's, or it is there. Um, today, this portion of the platform doesn't get released until tomorrow. And so what I can tell you, that as your member of parliament, though, my job is to listen to you and to make sure that I'm fighting for the things that you want. You know, this community, as we can see by everyone here today, cares a lot about the arts. Not every riding, as I said at the very beginning of my opening, um, necessarily has these types of debates. And so I can tell you as your member of parliament that I would definitely sit down and fight for the things that this community wants. And this is something that our community here wants. We know that. And so whether it's uh, the existing program renewed, whether it's the existing program reduced, or whether it's an entirely new set of programs, my job as your member of parliament is to look through all the programs we have and to basically sometimes take those square um, round pegs and put them into a square hole and to work with you to make sure that you get the money that you need because I do believe that economic development, especially around arts, is crucial for our riding here and I would want to make sure that as your member of parliament to continue fighting for you. Thank you. In a word, my answer is yes. Uh, we would commit to uh, continuing at the level of funding and I would push to grow uh, the amount of funding. I know that the arts, every dollar put into the arts has an invest, is an investment that pays back at least sevenfold to the overall economy. Uh, and I know that the arts are a career. They're not a hobby. They're not a nice thing to have in elementary schools. It's not something that you do with the kids on a Saturday afternoon, though it is also that. But it is absolutely a career for many of the people in this room, many of the people in our community, and 300,000 people in this province. So we need to make sure that we have have strong, stable funding so that those people can make plans, that they can build on their successes. And we need to ensure that the arts funding that's going out is not just going to new projects, but is maintaining and supporting projects that are working in communities across Canada like this one. We have lots of great activity happening here, and it just needs sustaining funds more than anything. So we need to make sure that we invest in those things. Uh, I think I was going to say something else, but I forget. But anyway, I would say yes, we will, we will commit to maintaining that level of funding for the Canada Council. For myself, uh, I have run, uh, I've, I've written Canada Council grants, and I remember the first time I wrote one uh, that was successful was for 15 grand. I ran out to the parking lot from my office screaming and hollering because I was so excited because it meant that the artists that I was writing that grant for were going to be able to have a Christmas for their kids that, that winter, uh, as well as being able to fund their tour and not go into debt. So that was very exciting for me, and I feel strong strongly that this funding helps people and helps communities.
uh, explicitly stated in our platform, yes, increase funding to Canada Council of the Arts. Yes, increase funding to national the National Film Board. Yes, increase funding to Telefilm Canada. Absolutely. There are few sectors that are so, that have such a small ecological footprint that return such value on that investment. Um, and so Greens wholeheartedly um, in- increasing those supports. If we're at the end of that maturity, that would look like um, taking the uh, projected growth of those kinds of funds and, and increasing them beyond. Um, I'd also like to um, briefly touch on the, uh, another part of our platform where we'd like to level this playing field. Um, we'd like to reform antitrust laws um, to break up huge media conglomerates. Uh, when, when we're vying for the... Thank you. Uh, when when local artists are vying for the same grant dollars as as big corporations, we need to make sure that that every opportunity is afforded, um, especially locally. Uh, when we talk about green policies and in investing in local infrastructure, local food source, local everything, we need to uh, make sure that nobody is left behind. So, um, thank you for that great question. Merci beaucoup. Noguchi Wunong, Peter Barrow. Please join me in a generous round of applause for these amazing candidates. And uh, thank you to the panelists for their brilliant questions. To uh, EC3 and uh, others for setting this up. Showplace, thank you. You know, and most of all, just uh, I lived here for seven years until 1980. I came back in April. Um, I think this is an extraordinary community, and these events are just awe-inspiring. So thank you. Thank you, James Cullingham. You did a terrific job. We're thrilled to have you back in town. To Mike Skinner, Miriam Monsef, Candace Shaw... And uh, Andrew McGregor, thank you so much for putting us on your schedule. It really means a lot to the arts community. Thank you all for your commitment to and interest in the arts. Get out and vote on October 21st. Trent Radio attended the Arts Vote All Candidates Debate on Wednesday, October 9th, 2019 at Showplace Performance Centre. The event focused on federal government policy and its impact on the local arts, culture and heritage scene. The event was hosted by EC3 and supported by a coalition of local arts organizations. The event was over two hours long and live broadcast on Trent Radio 92.7 CFFM in Peterborough, Ontario, Canada. The segment includes introductions from each candidate, followed by panel questions and responses. The whole event will also be produced as a podcast for EC3 and distributed through their media channels.